This is a Lip Media Podcast. Content discussed on this podcast may be triggering for some individuals. So if you feel like today you can't quite handle it, that's totally fine. You can press pause and come back another day. Remember, we're always going to be here. And if you need immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hey everybody, welcome to If You Don't Mind. It's your host here, Madeline Charrington, welcoming you to another episode. Um, we are more than halfway through season two, which is exciting and exhilarating and amazing um, and only possible because of you guys. So thank you so much for listening. Um, guys, today we have a great guest. Her name is Eve. Um, she is extremely intelligent and brave and courageous and I loved speaking to her because she's had quite a few really intense things happen to her in her life um, and she did such an amazing job of discussing those. Eve and I have actually known each other for a few months now. We've been doing some in the climate change podcasting world but um, I've never been able to sit down and have such an intimate conversation with her and I really enjoyed this um, and I think you will too. Uh, look, it's a heavy episode. Um, we basically talk about Eve's experiences with PTSD and, and that comes from some pretty traumatic things that happened to her as a child and how that's kind of impacted her as an adult. Um, so, yeah, it's an intense one but I think a really important one um, in terms of a trigger warning, we obviously discuss PTSD and traumatic uh, events, particularly around health. Um, and there's quite um, it's quite a heavy discussion of uh, suicidal ideation throughout the the podcast. So, if that's something that you're not um, not ready to listen to today, that's fine. It's a, it's an intense one, I will admit. But um, when you're ready, you're you're more than welcome to come back and have a listen. So this is Eve. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I'll see you on the other side. Brilliant. We'll get started. So Eve, thank you so much for being on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm glad. And so guys, for those who are listening, Eve and I actually know each other already. We have been working on a podcast together as well. Eva is the host and I'm the producer, so that's how we know each other. Um, and, yeah, I'm so excited for you to be here today. It's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, it'll be good. What I wanted to ask you to start off with, and that's kind of like what I ask everybody, uh, who you are, what you do for a living, what your interests are, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Eve. I work as an environmental educator and – I also do like science communication about the climate crisis and my interests are like I love arts and crafts and all things to do with the ocean are kind of the three main things. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen some of your art. It's very good. Thank you. Uh, I, I doodle. It's true. <laughs> what do you think um, got you first interested in the ocean and the environment and that kind of stuff? Um, 
I think it's just like, and we'll get further into it, but it was kind of just like the only place I felt free Mm. was the natural world where there weren't any people around. Yes. And so, yeah, I just, it was just like my happy place as long as I can remember. So, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Still really enjoy swimming and getting amongst the fish. (laughs) I find the ocean is just like just sitting on the the sand looking out at the ocean is beyond the most peaceful thing a person can do. Yes. Well, and, and it's almost like the sound of the ocean, like it's breathing for you. So it's like guiding you just like. Yeah, keep going. I love that. That is the most beautiful thing. I've never thought of of it that way. Um, I will warn you, my dog is in the room today. He's decided that he'd like to be part of the conversation. He's very welcome. Thank you. His name is Mac and he's – like, to be honest, since we started doing the obviously lockdown stuff, we're here all the time and he has become very codependent. He's like, I don't understand why you're not in the room with me. So he's either with my partner or me. And my partner is like, being like, get out of the room. You're being too needy. He's like, he loves the dog, but he's just been like obsessively trying to get pats all afternoon. So he's now with me, uh, sunning himself uh, near the the balcony. So if you hear any uh, rustling or any noises, that's that's Mac. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And do you have your dog with you? Because you have a beautiful – do you have a Cavoodle? I have a Spoodle. A Spoodle. Um, And, no, he lives with my parents most of the time. That's, like, a couple of suburbs over. But, yeah, no, he's, like, the opposite. When we all go out of the house, he's like, oh, thank God. (laughs) 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 I don't want to be patted and go for walks. I just want to, like, sit in a dark corner of the – house and sleep that's so funny i love introverted dogs because they're just like so rare like most dogs are like pat me love me be with me do everything with me but then you'll just get that random dog who's like i'm not really interested in you yes i just kind of want to do what i want to do and you got to work around that schedule thank you very much um but i can't i need my dog to be obsessed with me i know it sounds really bad (laughs) No, I mean, like, you got a dog, not a cat, yes. so it makes sense. Hundred, yeah. Yes, you get it, 100%. Okay, well, I mean, I could talk about dogs all day, so I'll continue the conversation. <laughs> um, so I guess today we are going to be talking about some things that happened to you when you were younger and how that's kind of impacted on you now as an adult um, and that looking at that mental health journey from a very young age for you. You were very young when that kind of started mm. for you. So I'd love to kind of hear about what happened when you were only a few years old and and then the process kind of how it continued on from there? Yeah. So, yeah, I have no real conscious memory of being mentally well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I was six months old, my first not real memory but, like, kind of thing that impacted on my brain development was a lumbar puncture without anaesthetic, which is where they – take a big needle and mm. they put it through your spine. So, yeah, I Jeez. was in like a coma type situation mm. and they needed to test me for meningitis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, they did a 
lumbar puncture, but they never actually got a diagnosis. They never got a positive diagnosis. They never knew what I had. Um, and that just set. So when you're like that young Mm. and you are taken away from your parents and put through something like that, it actually just changes the way your brain develops. And so, yeah, that's kind of where it all began. And I started developing PTSD from there and it, yeah. Why did they not give you an anesthetic? Is it because you weren't awake? Um, It's because they didn't have time. Uh, So (laughs) it's hard. I think it's like very hard to get anesthesia right for an infant. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, it was just one of those things where if they didn't, like they didn't wait for a diagnosis because Mm -hmm. I was already dying. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That sounds incredibly intense. Yeah, it was big. Because I know like a lot of us have gone to hospital when we're babies because we've got a fever. Like I feel like that's the main thing. Like a baby will get a fever, they go in, they get tested, but there isn't really a lot of – I guess there isn't a traumatic aspect to that. But to go in, to be taken away from your parents and to have such an intense procedure performed on you, how how old were you? Six months. See, that's like – Oh, my God. And I've never thought about how, like, something happening to you that young would impact on you down the track, but it makes sense because your brain's developing. Like, that's a key time in which your brain is just developing constantly, right? Um, Geez, I'm so sorry that happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's good that we're kind of getting more understanding of how that impacts on brain development Mm. Um, because, yeah, a lot of – like the the general understanding for so long was like, oh well, they're little, they won't remember it. Oh well, <laughs> mm. like, um, and so yeah, it's good that it's like, oh, this is it. It takes then a lot of work to build up trust um, between the little person and her, the adults around them again. Yeah, no, that makes um, sense. I guess it's like my 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 twin sister has a baby right now. He's nearly a year old, and you every time you see him like you have to kind of go through that process of him trusting you like he's still getting used to you um obviously his parents are like his number one but all the other adults like he's just like i don't know who these people are you have to kind of show me that you're trustworthy and i'm safe around you uh and i can only imagine how scary that would be if you had people like adults around you who weren't doing that thing so yeah that sounds very intense yeah well, and, and um, so from that, there was just like all these repercussions mm-hmm. and it was basically then the assumption in my brain wasn't that you need to prove to me that you're trustworthy. It was, you are untrustworthy. Mm. I don't want to be around you. <laughs> you're not safe. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and I, and um, I developed a phobia. So the pediatrician who did the lumbar puncture had a beard. And I developed like a full-on phobia of men with beards, mm. um, which was a problem because like my uncles had beards, my godfather had a beard. <laughs> like there were a lot of bearded men in my life yeah. that I would just like run away from and hide in a cupboard. Because you're seeing that image and being triggered to that event. Yeah. Wow. And no one really knew why. It was just one of those ones of my parents were like, oh, yeah, no, she really doesn't like beards. Oh. <sighs> I mean, the only, I mean, yeah, that would, would be so hard to figure out as a parent. Like you just wouldn't be putting the two together. Like, how would you know? No. Well, and, um, 
having, so like my parents' experiences of that was having, you know, run to the hospital. They'd made an appointment with the GP and the GP said, there's no time. Mm. The Ambos thought I was going to die. And then the, um, the people in the hospital just took me away and they locked my parents in a room so that they couldn't try and fight anyone to get to me. Wow. And then my parents just heard me screaming. <laughs> so that's like traumatic for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like they didn't manage it very well because like it was incredibly traumatic for them. Mm. And then, yeah. Jeez. Okay. And so from that point on, how did that experience begin to kind of um, present itself within, you know, you as like a young child? Um, so my mum kind of said afterwards that it was almost like my personality changed Mm. Um, in the sense that like before I kind of like I slept through the night, I was pretty chill about it. If I was really hungry, I'd cry. But other than that, I was pretty happy to go with the flow. Mm. Um, And then after that event, it was like, you know, for someone so vulnerable, it was like anything that could remotely be a threat mm. was triggering. So it was like if I was hungry, I would scream. If I was tired, I would scream, like, wow. you know, all of those things. And um, that kind of, like, it dissipated over time. But um, when I was a kid, um, that distrust kind of never really went away. Mm. Um, and then that meant that, so, for example, when I was, sort of 18 months to two, they tested me for epilepsy because I would just dissociate. Hmm. Now, in hindsight, that's what we know what it was, but it was just like I would just zone out for like hours at a time and no one knew why I was doing that. I didn't even know that was possible for someone so young to disassociate. Mm. That That sounds incredibly frightening, but I guess you weren't really aware what was happening. No, I have no memory of it. It's just written down in my mem- medical records that I had a whole bunch of tests. Wow. And then I was like, hey, mum, why did I have so many tests? And she was like, oh, yeah, no, they thought you had epilepsy. And I didn't. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I guess, and I know you mentioned that you had like a second life-threatening illness when you were kind of four. That was mm. whooping cough, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess that would have then kind of, continued that fear and continued that anxiety um yeah could you talk about that yeah so um one of the other things that they did was they gave me an adult dose of antibiotics and antivirals Mm -hmm. um as a six-month-old and it clearly let me survive but it meant that my immune system was just shot yeah for like years and years Mm -hmm. um and so then when I got whooping cough Probably my first, like, proper memory, like, the one where you're like, oh, what's your first memory? Like, that memory Mm. is my mum, like, standing over me just screaming at me to breathe. Yeah. Um, Because you, the way that whooping cough works is you literally cough until there's no air left in your lungs. Mm. And so then you just stop breathing. And then sometimes you then have a mother that shocks you back into breathing again and sometimes <laughs> you don't I guess wow yeah 
And that would have been so scary to, like, be so young and not be able to breathe. Like, it's like my worst nightmare is, like, that feeling of being suffocated. Mm. Um, gosh, that would have been so scary. Yeah, yeah. And then I, and that was, you know, then I started preschool and then it was like, all right, now you have to, like, draw butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot happening in the first few years of your life, like I, it only it makes so much sense that you would then kind of start to struggle with things like dissociating and and anxiety and and have PTSD because like you've had so many traumatic experiences and you're not even in kindergarten yet. Yeah, jeez, um, that's intense. Yes. Well, and it, and and when it's that young, like lots of people, if you have PTSD when you're older, there's like a full recovery time. But when it's that early on in your brain structure, then it's kind of permanent, like mm. it's how my brain grew. Mm. Okay. Just, yeah. That makes sense. Um, mm. I guess I'd really like to talk about um, what happened when you were nine years old. Are you okay to talk about mm. that, Eve? Yeah. Okay. So I know you mentioned there was like a lot of things kind of happening in your life at that time. There was Canberra bushfires. Um, you had a really crappy teacher, that kind of stuff. Um and this all kind of culminated in your first suicidal episode. Yes. Would you be able to talk to us about that? Yeah. Uh, so that kind of begins taking off when I started school, which is that um, when, like, kids scream at the level that I was screaming and for things like food – for things like if they're feeling socially isolated, um, people often interpret it as throwing a tantrum for yep. not getting what they want. Yes. Um, and so it sort of began, yeah, in preschool that um, I was taught that what the way that I was reacting to things was wrong and that I was wrong and that um, my parents were doing the wrong thing mm. and that I was bringing shame on my family for reacting in the way that I was. Yeah. Um, and because I was so little, that kind of then moved into this idea that um, I had this, I just felt like I had this monster inside of me mm. and that I should have died. Like I had yeah. this overwhelming sense that I should have died. Um, and so when I was nine, like it just, it kind of just took um, a little stressor. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't a little stressor. So when I was nine, we had the Canberra bushfires. Um, and although like thankfully my house wasn't affected, but the way that that affected the community was that, everyone was affected hmm. in some way and everyone was stressed. Yep. So that meant that no one had time for any added stressor mm -hmm. or added vulnerability. Um, and that played out in two ways, one of which was my next-door neighbour started dying of AIDS um, and no one, like he had his partner there all the time, yep. but the government wasn't giving them adequate support mm. or adequate care. Mm. And the upshot of that was that I used to go to bed every night listening to him scream. Wow. Because AIDS is incredibly painful. Yeah. <laughs> and then 
um, then, yeah, I was in an incredibly dark place for a kid. Mm. Like, I thought I was supposed to be dead. One of the, like, loveliest men in the world that I knew was dying slowly and painfully next door. Mm. And I just kind of felt, I just remember feeling like this is really wrong. There's been a terrible mistake that I'm here and I shouldn't be here and the only way to right it is to kill myself. Yeah. Um, and so I remember that my mum had to go and pick up my sister, who was in year six mm. at the time. Uh, she, he, she had to go and pick her up from netball practice or something. Maybe it was soccer. Um, and I just, you know, did the old, uh, I wrote a note and I um, had a knife to my chest on the kitchen floor. Mm. And then I just remembered I had um, a spelling mistake in the note. Wow. <laughs> and it was just that split second like, oh, maybe I should not do this. Like maybe I should go and do that instead. That kind of was like, oh, you know, maybe mum would be upset Yeah, if I did that. Um, and so I went and watched Nickelodeon. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, that's so incredibly – I mean, a lot of the people I speak to obviously haven't had um, that experience until they're much older. Mm. Did you did you discuss this with your parents? Did you tell them what had happened? No, okay. never. And, like, that was one of those things that I just shut in a box mm. and didn't release until I was 22. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean – and it's incredible that just like that split second decision meant you stayed, which is obviously incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how did you feel after it? Did you kind of just, did you, did those feelings continue or did they kind of dissipate? Um, I think, well, they didn't for a while. I was mm. still very sick. Yeah. Um, but I think it was, I think my mum kind of knew that, Something was wrong. Yeah. Um, and so a couple of days after that, she asked me if I wanted to move schools. And it was just a little change in my life that kind of made it just a little bit better. Mm. Um, and although nowadays, JK Rowling, no deal. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like her no but um the fifth harry potter book came out shortly after that and that was when he was all shouty and traumatized yes and i read that and i was like oh okay well you know harry kept going so like so will i <laughs> isn't that incredible like yes jk rowling we don't want we don't want to talk about it but those books themselves i've heard so many stories of people just being like i read this book and i was like shit, like, this means so much to me and I can keep going because this character has kept going. Um, mm. That's really cool. Yeah, well, and, and he had all these shouties and I really liked that because it was like, yeah, you know, he would be screaming. Oh, I would yeah. be screaming if I was him. Can you imagine if <laughs> Harry Potter actually that was real? Like, the amount of that... The amount of trauma he had gone through. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> doesn't actually make any sense. That kid would not be be able to just like go about his day like he'd need some intense therapy yeah let's be yeah. honest yeah um okay so after this happened I guess I'm really interested to know once you got to high school 
Did you were you able to start kind of talking about what was going on with you, or was it still kind of something that you hid a lot? What were your experiences like when you were in high school? It was absolute denial. Yeah. Um, so my experience of high school was, you know, I was pretty. I am pretty good at school. Mm-hmm. I'm good at sport. And so I realized I could tick all the boxes that high school needed me to tick. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, okay, well, that doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, classic, like I changed my name from Evie to Eve because I was super oh, adult now. Okay. And, <laughs> and I was just like, no, that's, that's, you know, primary school me. She was a loser. Now I'm high school Eve and I can, you know, be good at everything and, you know, be the best. And yeah. that wasn't great. I was a bit of a turd, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we all were yeah. terrible. Um, and did you have like like a big friendship group? Were you were you social? Were you able to kind of share this stuff with your friends, or was it just again like completely nothing? Um, I had a big friendship group, but I think it's one of those ones where high school is all where mental health issues usually present. Yep. And um, I think because I was carrying so much from my childhood, when those things presented in other people, I would just shut down. Mm. Like I was just like, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't negotiate with that. Yeah. Um, and so I think basically I just wasn't a very good friend mm-hmm. as a result in high school. Um, and I, you know, I got, I had a lot of friends, um, but. Yeah, and then also I, I went to school in a very conservative part of the country and then went on to become, like, a climate campaigner. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, that did not work. I love it. I love it. But, I mean, having said that, though, like, when we're in high school, none of us have those tools to kind of really help anyone else who's who's dealing with a mental health issue. It's very hard. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't be too hard on yourself because, like, I wouldn't have known what to do. I would just be like, it's okay. Uh, I'm sorry you're crying. Don't know what to do. <laughs> it's yes, <laughs> it's difficult because you don't know. How, it's such a a complicated um, issue, and you're only you're only like able to fix things or work with things that you're you know you're you're used to or you're aware of aware of. So it's very hard to do that when you're like 16. Like you've got no chance. No, you don't. <laughs> Too yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, okay, and so I guess you you mentioned just before. Um, you kind of didn't really deal with anything until you were 22. Mm. Um, can you can you talk me through kind of what happened and then what led you to get help after that? Yeah. Um, so I kind of left high school. I had a great ATAR. I knew exactly what I wanted to study. Went and studied marine science and climate science and got involved in the climate movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because the climate movement at that time was so small, uh, you kind of become friends with the people that you study with, with the people that you campaign with. Yes. And so they just became my community. Um, oh, also I moved from Sydney to Hobart, so I didn't oh, know anyone as well. Big change. <laughs> yeah. Real cold. My God. <laughs> so cold. <laughs> <laughs> I think I also got quite sad there, but I think it was because I was too cold. Yeah. <laughs> like, I guess um, that. It's like when it's yes. dark and cold. I don't like this. This is not for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Terrible. Um, yeah. Um, and so then in 2016, when I was 22, I went up to a frontline coal active action mm-hmm. um, and a girl got sick uh, with heat stroke and I was first aid officer um, and I performed first aid for six hours in the bush and it just kind of was one of those situations where um, I felt like what I was doing was t- too big and mm. too hard mm-hmm. and everybody else was like yeah but we got to act on climate so they went and chained themselves to a coal train wow <laughs> and just like didn't uh support me at all um and so when that's your community and mm. your passion and mm. what you study and want to build a life out of um that kind of just threw me off into yep. a massive tailspin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even then I still just didn't get help. Mm. <laughs> I still was like, oh, no, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, what I've been through doesn't count. I'm not a veteran. I've never been sexually assaulted. So, like, it's fine. Um, and then 18 months later I saw a woman get hit by a car and she was just dead. Yeah. Like, there was nothing you could do. Mm. Um, and because there was nothing you could do, I kind of just was like, oh, shit. Like it was awful, but I kind of just didn't take it on. Like I didn't mm. feel it in my body. Mm. And I don't think that was a dissociative thing. I think it was just a like far out. Like that was something awful to witness, but there was just a bunch of moving parts that I had no control over. That yeah collided when I was there yeah um and so it was only after that that I was like oh okay like maybe this is valid (laughs) for me to go and see someone about a hundred percent I think that's such a it's such a annoying stereotype in terms of like PTSD only affects people who've been in war or um had like a, a a traumatic accident like it's there's so many different things that can trigger it and it's it's basically based in trauma right like it's it's and I, I think with you obviously it would be much more complex than just regular PTSD um because it's been going on since you were so young and you've just had all these like like a build-up of all these experience that experiences that have not been addressed yeah I think is the best way of explaining it um and then so you went and got help eventually and is that when you kind of got that diagnosis of PTSD and depression yeah, so that was when I went and got help and luckily I was in Canberra at the time. Mm. Um, so the trauma centres in Canberra because they have um, the defence force in Canberra, the trauma centres are great. If you have PTSD and you live in Canberra, reach out, like, mm. or you think you do, like, oh, my God, they're so good. That's so um, good. And so that was when, like, I was like, oh, I think this is what's going on. Um Oh, no, that's not what happened. I dissociated in my local Woolies and I just had a security guard come up to me and I was being like, are you okay? And I was Mm. like, I don't know where I am. And he was like, well, you're in Woolies and you've been staring at the oranges for 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, Oh, no, (laughs) that's not good. (laughs) 
and that was when I went and got help. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I did a bunch of tests and then I did, um, and then I got diagnosed, um, with, with PTSD. I didn't get diagnosed with depression at that point. Mm. Um, and then they kind of, yeah, they kind of were like, oh, we don't know if you have PTSD or you might have borderline personality disorder or something, you know, Mm. they weren't really sure. Um, and so then, but PTSD kind of fit right for me. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It made sense. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel like getting that diagnosis and getting that help was affirming for you? Yes. Um, it was kind of just this giant relief um, of that there has been something I've been carrying this whole time um, that hadn't been named. Mm. And so it was really great to name it and go, oh, there is something that we can do to help manage this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then I guess when, when you had that diagnosis – around that age of, of 22, 23, what was, what was kind of like your journey like after the fact? Once you had that diagnosis, what, did it, what happened for you after that? Um, it was really rocky. Mm. Um, I think a lot of it was that – so I had EMDR, which worked kind of too well for me in the sense that it – knocked me around really badly. And what's M, um, M- EMDR? Yeah. It's eye movement desensitization r- r- something. Okay. <laughs> There's an R. Um, Repetitive? No. Yeah. My eye movement I desensitization R- EMDR. E. I'm going to look it up. EMDR. Oh, uh, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. There you go, reprocessing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, internet. So it's, yeah, <laughs> it's where they get you to, like, look, like, so they replicate REM sleep, um, oh. which is where you process your memory. So when you have a traumatic experience, like an acute one, the way you do it is you fall asleep, you start processing your memories of the day when you're dreaming. Wow. But... If it's too traumatic, you get a rush of adrenaline and you wake up. Okay. And that repeats and repeats and repeats, which is why sleep is so important so after important. a traumatic, well, just generally. Just generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, like, especially if you've been through something, like, you've got to do everything you can to go to sleep. Um, and so EMDR is where they replicate REM sleep eye movements. So you're like, moving your eyes across a room, kind of like you're watching a, like, sped-up game of tennis. Mm. Um, And then you recall the traumatic incident. So you have to talk through um, what happened while you're doing that. Um, That's intense. It was super intense. Um, And afterwards I felt like I couldn't really tell if I was dreaming or not. Hmm. Um, so I had some pretty scary hallucinations. I was tired all the time. I just like would forget to do things at all. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was good in the sense that, like, I improved a lot in my 10 Medicare sessions. Yep. Um, but now I'm on a different plan, so I don't have the Medicare sessions anymore. I get to just, like, go at my own pace, which is a lot better. Which is uh, – I wish everybody could do that. <laughs> like, I uh, I could talk about the Medicare sessions for days um, <laughs> and how it doesn't really – it only caters to a very small percentage of people, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of need, um, and I, I guess obviously when you were you were twenty three, you had some other kind of. You mentioned to me earlier you had some other, you know, intense things happen to you. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk through that yeah. as well? Sure. Um, so I guess before I was diagnosed, but the same year, so twenty seventeen. Um, so it was like just after Trump got elected and I couldn't <laughs> engage with the climate. Like I cared so much about climate change and acting on it mm. and I couldn't engage with the movement at all. Um, and I was finding that really, really challenging. Um, and so then my family friends were like, hey, do you want to come and move in with our disabled daughter who I've known since I was four um she just wants to know what it's like to experience like all the ups and downs of like a 20 something share house yeah and I was like oh I can do that (laughs) (laughs) like get ready for a hot mess so um I moved in with her but then yeah and so I got diagnosed while I was still living with her and that was actually really great because I was going through this this treatment and I was going through recognizing all of this stuff Mm. but there was just like things where it was like okay but you need to just kind of settle that aside and you need to cook dinner and it needs to be ready by seven and she was autistic so like I don't mean 658 I mean seven Mm. like (laughs) and so it was really great to just have that kind of outlet yes to not be sitting and reflecting all the time to just be like, oh, you actually have to care for someone that you love mm. and do that well. And um, so that was great. Uh, but then so that was March 2017 I moved in with her and in late November 2017 she got hit by a car. Oh, no. Yeah, so there was that and then um, one of – and then, yeah, um, I – so that was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I went and saw her in the hospital. And then that Friday, I was just walking outside in Ultimo, outside UTS. Hmm. And this guy just beat up his girlfriend, like right in, fr- in public, like wow. right in front of everyone. Um, and we called the police and stuff and the police just didn't care. Hmm. Like they just didn't show up. Um, That's so fucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, And so then I kind of that night I wanted to just, I hadn't told my friends that any of that had happened. Yeah. Um, But I just wanted to go and like have a beer. Um, But you know, when your friends are like, oh yeah, I'm on my way when they're really clearly not on their way. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like 
you're watching YouTube in your house. Yeah, you're in the shower. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. But like, tell me, don't tell me you're on your way. Yeah. So they were doing that, and um, so like, and then so I kind of bailed after waiting for them for like half an hour. I was like, I'm done, and so I went, and I was just. I got, I just was standing at a train station and I just, it felt like I was just being sucked down a hole mm. and that the only way out was to jump in front of the train. Mm. And um, then, uh, um, sorry. Uh, it's okay. Security guard helped me out. Again, mm. security mm. guards, they're good people. Yeah. <laughs> Working hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, got me on. I think it's probably because I'm Lifeline has never worked for me, but I think security guards must have a, like, fast-tracked Lifeline or something. Yeah. Because he just gave me a Lifeline person wow. on the phone right there and then was like, talk to this person, and they talked me down, and I went home. Wow. So that was great. Yeah. Wow. I mean, on the whole, not great. But that no. little bit, that was great. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's Lifeline's incredible when you can – I mean, obviously when you can access it. Um, mm. But to be able to do that right then and there would have been so important for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and – sorry, what were we going to say? Yeah, and, you know, I think it was good for the security guard as well, just in the sense that he could help but also he didn't have to take it on. Yes, definitely. So good. And I guess we're kind of coming up to nearly how old, how old are you now? You're 26. I'm 26, yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of caught up nearly. Yeah. Um, what has been the last two years like for you in terms of treatment and recovery? Mm-hmm. Um, so treatment on the whole has been really good. I started doing uh, this thing that's quite popular in the US that isn't um, mainstreamed. It's still classified as like an alternative medicine here, Mm -hmm. but it's like, okay, like if it's an alternative that comes out of the trauma lab at Berkeley, it's not that alternative. No, and if it works for you, it works for you. (laughs) Okay. Which is psychosomatic processing. Yes, Um, I've heard of it. Yeah, so it's kind of like EMDR on in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still got the thing where you have to, like, look at a certain spot, but your eyes aren't moving all the time. Um, and then it's really about feeling in your body where you're being triggered right. and reflecting on that rather than it being in your head of, like, what's triggering you. Mm-hmm. Um and that's all, like, that's great because it's like you can kind of train yourself to realize you're being triggered before you even know why or what is triggering you. Yes. Um, you wow. can just be like, I'm not happy. I'm going to, like, go and take care of myself. And then once you're coming to, already coming down, you can be like, oh, that's why. Yes. That's Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's kind of the way that, especially when you have like complex traumas that you kind of can't make sense of a whole bunch of stuff all going on at the same time. Mm. Um, 
yeah, it's really good to just um, realize that there's a kind of fight or flight response going on in your body and then being like, well, I'm going to make myself safe and then I'll worry about why I'm having a fight or flight response. Yes. Um, yeah. So That's so interesting. Yeah. And you found that's really helped you. I have. Um, and so, yeah, I, I improved when I was 24 and I moved back home for a year. I improved in just leaps and bounds. Mm. Um, I got so much better so quickly. And then I moved back to Hobart to do a PhD. Wow, okay. And just slid back Mm. down into my hole again because I didn't have any treatment and I didn't have any support network because all of my friends in Hobart originally had left. Yeah. Um, And so... I was in a quite insidious work environment where like your friends and your support network were also your colleagues. So if you had a problem with work, like yeah. it meant that you were having a problem with your friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not good. Not a healthy workplace structure. And, um, and also like quite it's, it's science. So like, uh, people are very, like, harsh in their criticisms, mm. um, which I think is, like, fine. But, yeah, and so I was walking along in Hobart one day and there was just a pile of clothes outside my pool, mm. the pool, and um, everyone had just been walking past them and I just stopped and looked and on top of the clothes was a suicide note and a little makeshift gravestone. Mm. And that kind of just, that was when I got really, really, like, sicker than I'd ever been in my life. Mm. Um, like, even worse than when I was nine because it wasn't a, like, this is wrong, this is bad. It was just a, like, it's time now. Like, yeah. it's, you're ready, almost. It was super scary. It was, yeah, the, the feeling wasn't a, like, this world is too hard. It was, like, you're, you're ready to not be here anymore. It's time to just go to sleep. Yeah. Um, and so that was really bad. Um, and I just kind of sat in that feeling for too long. Um, and my mom and my sister had to come and get me and bring me home. And I remember just telling everyone that, um, oh, I'm just going home for a few weeks to like clear my head and I'll be back in like two to three weeks. And I just haven't been back. (laughs) (laughs) It's been like a year and a half (laughs) and now it's COVID. So I can't go back. (laughs) I'm not going back. I got a job here that I like. Um, and so that, that was how I was, so that was when I was in a psych hospital for the first time. And, Mm. um, so, and one of the other things, which is great is that mostly PTSD is unmedicated Mm. unless you're comorbid with something else. Um, and so no one had ever given me like antidepressants or anything before. Wow. 
So then I got antidepressants for the first time and they were great. They do work great, don't they? Well, I mean, yeah, not for everybody, they, but they work. Yeah, when they work. Yeah, when they work, they work. Like, yes. <laughs> my God. <laughs> um, and, yeah, since then I've been, like, slowly rebuilding and pretty optimistic. That's really yeah. cool that you've kind of got to a point where now you've got, like, all these tools, I feel like, that you can yes. kind of – rely on and pull from to kind of continue on but like I mean what what an intense like you know few years that's been for you yeah it's been rocky that's for sure um and I don't really like it's and and because I traveled around so much there's Mm. so many people in my life that are like oh my god I haven't seen you in ages how have you been and I'm just like (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to start. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's really interesting. Like you, you have this, the way you speak and the way you talk, like you've got this, you've still got this like joy to you um, and this sense of humor. Yeah. Which I hear, like you are talking about these really intense things that have happened to you and all these experiences, but you, you still have this like, I don't know, this like this playfulness to you, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I think it's because I spent so long as a kid and then as a young adult convincing myself that I deserved to be alive. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and that that there was nothing that I could have done to control really any of that. Mm. And so, but there is, like, like, something I can control in the life I live now. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of like the best of the climate movement is like the bit where it's like, fuck you, I know exactly what the problem is, I'm not denying it, and I'm going to live anyway, not survive, I'm going to live. Yeah. And I kind of just internalised that of like, well, no, like, <laughs> yes, I survived a whole bunch, but like I want to at least try to, yeah, um, be kind of, yeah, I talked about it before, but it's called radical joy of like being joyful is part of resisting. Yep. Yeah. And then you get better at it as you practice, basically. That's, that's, I love that. I like that, that idea of radical joy. I think, I think, and you obviously have so much to contribute to the world as well with the work oh. you're doing. Um, and I'm sure that that gives you purpose. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> I currently work as an environmental educator. And the good thing about that is that it, like, it is big picture stuff. Yes. But, like, the ins and outs of it is, like, making worm farms and, like, using shampoo bottles to make fish for kids <laughs> and things that are just objectively kind of silly and really fun. Yeah. And then, like, you kind of just forget about the bigger picture while you're doing it, but then, like, when you step back, you're like, oh, I am contributing something great. Yes, and I think out of yeah. everyone I've spoken to, I feel like you're the most deserving to just have a bit of fun. Well, thanks, mate. <laughs> I, I think I think considering everything you've seen, experienced, been through, I think it's a positive thing to not have to. I think sometimes when you then 
go into those really serious jobs, like sometimes it can just be a bit intense, but I think sometimes just having a bit more of a, a lighthearted profession is a good thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, like, making it lighthearted can have it, like, a more of an impact. Yeah. As well, because people don't feel like they should go and do it. They just actually want to come and join the party. Yep, 100%. Um, there's, there's always a time to be serious and there's always a time to, you know, put out a call for action and to get people in, involved in the more, you know, the more serious stuff. But you have to make the stuff you do, you have to make the things you do joyful and playful as well. Like there has to be that element to things. Otherwise it is all very dark and gloomy. Um, mm. And I think when you can bring the joy to something, like that's amazing. Yeah. Well, and I think also the other thing that plays into it is that like for so many people, innocence is something that's lost. Mm. Whereas for me, like I was still innocent. I was six months old. Yeah. It just took a different form in the sense of, because I was so young, I still did all the things toddlers do. Mm. Like I still loved, you know, well, I didn't love mermaids. I loved sea dragons <laughs> <laughs> and frogs and, and worms and stuff. And, you know, I did all those things. And so when you have to like simultaneously deal with like these overwhelming struggles that no one of any age can make sense of mm. and be a small child then like that kind of carries through on the same thing of well you know I just kind of feel like there's nothing that's going to break if that if like if that didn't break my innocence then like nothing is nothing will yeah yeah you're so resilient so resilient (laughs) I'm very impressed and I mean everybody I speak to is resilient um it's just it's a different kind with you it's been very been very interesting hearing you talk um we're nearly out of time mm-hmm. but i do have one final question that's what i ask everybody and that is anyone who is going through um i guess uh, is experiencing ptsd and, and hasn't reached out for help and doesn't know what to do what would be some advice you'd give them to start that process hmm. i would say that It might seem like there's no way out Mm. and that what we have a, my best mate and I give, have my PTSD has a mascot. It's called Shafty the Mine Shaft. (laughs) You fall down a mine shaft and your day's ruined because you got to spend the day climbing out of it. Yeah. But like there's ways, it's not that. It's ever going to go away. Yeah. Like you're never going to go back to the person that you were, but there's so many ways to figure out a way to live a full and yet joyful life. Mm. Um, And, you know, you're not alone. There's so many people in the world that are trying to figure out how to be again because the world's just shifted around them and they don't know where they are anymore. 
That is the most eloquent thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I love that. That was so good. That was perfect. Great. I think I've got my Instagram co- quote already. That's it. Oh, it's, never the, it's never the last thing, but there you go. Um, <laughs> Eve, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you sharing this this story because I know a lot of it that you haven't kind of, you know, put out there before. Um, and it's very brave what you're doing. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Eve. Thanks. All right. Hi, guys. I know that was an intense one, but I think a really important one to share with you all. Eve is so brave and courageous to kind of show all of, to tell us all of that. I think um, there are so many different kind of journeys people can go through and, and go on. And it's it's been a very rocky one for Eve, but I think her telling that story is really important, especially in terms of looking at how like things that we experience when we're very young can have this really, really big impact on us when we're older. I never thought of a traumatic event happening to you when you're pretty much an infant, um, how that can then affect you long term. But it makes sense because your brain's still developing. And I feel like, as Eve said, there, there's a lot to kind of learn and understand. Um, so thank you, Eve, for joining us on the show. Uh, before we go, guys, if you want to reach me, you can at if you don't mind podcast at gmail.com. I, pro- I apologize if my dog is backing in the background. Someone's doing bloody construction on Saturday morning, which is not very nice. Anyway, um, yeah, so if you want to, if you want to reach me, uh, be on the show, anything like that, you can email me there. Um, get involved. Uh, interact with me on Facebook, if you don't mind, uh, Instagram, if you don't mind, podcast. And if you want to be a patron, uh, you can join me at Patreon. Um, also, very exciting, a little bit of a goss for you. I may or may not, well, I'm, I will be, um, but who knows when, uh, I'm going to be organising some merchandise for the show. We're going to be doing T-shirts, which is really really exciting. Um, and the good thing about it is uh, 50% of those profits will be going to a grassroots organisation that I will name in the future. Um, so keep an eye out on the socials uh, if you would like to support, if you don't mind, Support a grassroots uh, organization. Um, and if you want a really funky t shirt, because they're going to be sick, I promise you. Well, that's all from me, guys. I hope you have um, a good week. Remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to one another. And when you can, listen to someone's story, because I mean, it's stories like Eve that will, will change the way we think, act, and ultimately behave as a society. So thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.